This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Christine Fisher grew up fishing and playing in the outdoors. What she didn't realize at the time was that she'd soon become one of the most well-known anglers in the National Kayak Bass Tournament scene. The recognition wasn't unwarranted. Christine boasted three national level wins and a second in the 2019 season, and she added another big win and several top tens in 2020. One of these wins secured her a spot on the USA team as one of seven anglers to represent her country. It also just so happens to make her the first female in the world to ever qualify for this prestigious event. I was excited to sit down with Christine to learn more about her career and perspectives. In this episode of Anchored, we sit down to discuss her fiery online presence, her impressive catch record, and the sacrifices she's made to get this far. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Great Fishing Adventures of Australia. The diversity of Australia's fishing experiences is as vast as the country itself. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia is the catch of Australia's best fishing operators that have come together to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world-class fishing destination. No matter what the season, Australia offers enthusiasts the opportunity to indulge in their passion and experience some of the world's very best fishing amongst some of the most naturally spectacular environments the world has to offer. Discover your next fishing adventure by visiting australia.com forward slash fishing. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out anchoredoutdoors.com. Our trout fishing masterclass goes live next week, and it's well worth signing up for. Plus, if you sign up now, you get access to all of our classes and premium content. I love welcoming new members into our community, and I hope to get to know you better soon. 
Come on over to anchoredoutdoors.com or shoot me an email at info at anchoredoutdoors.com for more information. This is so exciting. I have so many questions for you. Awesome. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. I've, like I said, I brought followed you for a long time and have enjoyed about 98% of your shows. One of them was a little, funny, but you know, I think you <laughs> handled it well. It's just the guest of choice. It was, it was interesting, thought provoking. I think I know that, that interview. And you know, it's funny because I wasn't going to talk to you about various things that I'm sure we're going to end up talking about, but I really enjoyed going through your blog. Which one? My old one? I have no idea, but I was like, this girl's got a lot, or this woman's got a lot to say. Like, let's, let's just, we'll get there. We'll get into new blogs, old blogs, new thoughts, old thoughts, but let's just start where we start with everybody so that we're keeping it consistent. So perfect. Hopefully I've got a little more tack than I did about five years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that so true? You know, I look back and I'm so embarrassed in so many ways of you know, about my career. It's funny that, you know, you say you've been following me for a while. That that means a lot to me, but at the same time, I'm like, Oh God, how far back? You have a little, a little fiery and a little bold, but you know what? I always appreciate people that have that. And then I, I, it's, it's interesting to see like how they, how they mature with how they deliver everything. You know, it's really, I I like that. I like to watch a person's career in that regard. And trust me, mine's, mine has been down that same road. So I get that. Yeah. I wonder if we can ever grow up past it. Do you think that we're ever able to get past it? Or do you think deep down people are always like, we can't forget what we've seen? You know, I think there probably are a lot of people that that harbor those feelings and rightfully so, but everyone to some capacity has that thing that if they're really passionate about it, yeah, it's always there within us. But it's, I think that as we grow and as we open our minds and new perspectives and everything like that, we are able to be better about listening, entertaining other things. And just like I said, working on our, our deliverance and people just have to accept it for what it is. We're allowed to change the way that we feel about something. You know what I mean? We're allowed to like change our, our perspectives a little bit. That's what life's all about. Yeah. And and grow up. I mean, I think it's just so easy. We all so badly want to understand other people, but it takes a serious commitment of time and dedication to understand somebody properly. So it's so easy to be like, okay, I put in the time to figure you out. I've made up my mind on who you are. And then when you have to go and figure them out again, it's like a whole new investment of time into having to figure out who they are today. So I think it's just easier to put people in a box and, you know, shut the lid and forget about it. So where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in uh, Weeping Water, Nebraska, a little town of about 800 people nestled in the southeastern part of the state. Very small, very remote, very desolate, and not a lot going on. But I had a, a pretty interesting and unique childhood. I was pretty fortunate to be brought into a very outdoors-oriented family with a, a, a passion for travel and camping. And, you know, like the if I could sum up my childhood in just a few words, you know the Griswold, that, that family Christmas movie that's awful with, like, everything that goes wrong? Like, imagine that in a camping setting with the van, with the shag carpet and the hurricanes and like the tornadoes and the hail, that was kind of like my um, introduction to the outdoors uh, with my family. No, I really enjoy going through some of your old photos. Now this is personal, but I ask everybody, I'm going to ask you this too. Judging by your hairstyle when you were younger, I'm going to say you're an eighties baby. Are you an eighties baby? I am late eighties. And my dad actually did my hair. My mom worked nights. 
So that, that awful, like you see all these burns, like my, my dad, my, my parents never abused me, but my dad wasn't great with the curling iron and my mom wanted these big bangs and my dad couldn't handle it. And we did the best of what we had. I love it. I love it. So growing up, it, it sounds like your parents were caring and that they did go out of their way to, to give you, and I think siblings, do you have siblings? I have a, yep. I have a younger brother. He's two years younger than me. So we were, we we're fairly close in age. So it looked like they were trying to give you guys a quality life. I read, I've read quite a bit about you not having a television and I was hoping we could start with, with that. Cause that's really interesting to me. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I felt very, um, you know, maybe not very fortunate growing up without having one. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, but that wasn't the primary reason, uh, why my mom, and dad didn't want us to have that. They wanted us to have, like you said, a, a different type of appreciation. And they wanted us to use our minds and to get outdoors and to, to truly experience life without the, you know, as we know, a lot of us watch TV because it's it's mindless. We're allowed to shut our brains off. And that's kind of the opposite of how my, my family functions. We're a family of entrepreneurs. We're always thinking and going 100 miles an hour. And so it just was counterintuitive to the style that um, my folks raised us, you know? And so it was always interesting. I was left out of a lot of those conversations, you know, in junior high and high school and what have you about, you know, what was going on with MTV or this celebrity or this, this TV show or, you know, these iconic shows that we all grew up with. I mean, I felt kind of left out in that capacity, but then as soon as like, you know, I got through college and worked at a couple different jobs and heard people and how much time they invested into these series and these, this, this, I'm sorry, garbage reality TV. I felt, I, I, ca- I remember calling my dad and I think I was 22 years old and it took a lot for me to do this because I'm a very proud individual, but I called him and I said, dad, you were right. You were right. I'm sorry. I'm so glad we didn't have television and I've never had a TV in any home that I've owned ever since then. So what did you guys spend all your time doing? It looks like you spent a lot of time outside. We did. That's, you know, that's, that's what we did. You know, we were, I was in a small town, but we traveled a lot. You know, my, my family was unique in the fact that, you know, they wanted us to have that small town upbringing, but they also wanted us to have a little bit of culture and perspective. So we traveled a lot. Um, uh, interesting enough, my mom and dad actually, before my brother was born, they wanted to live on a boat and go up and down the Mississippi river and raise us, homeschool us on a boat. I mean, how freaking cool is that? I was like, why didn't you guys do that? Like, it's so much cooler if you guys did that. Um, they actually bought a ton of books about it. And you know, that's another big part of my upbringing was books. We had family nights where we go to Barnes and Noble and we were allowed to buy a book every single, you know, every two weeks on a Tuesday, I think it was, we'd buy a book gosh, we camped every week. And I can remember my brother and I, we had that old, you know, childhood deal where you come in when the streetlights come on. It it was just one of those typical small town USA upbringings with a lot of travel, a lot of crowding into the family van, going up North, um, to boundary waters, huge part of fostering my love for fishing was born on the boundary waters up there. I have tons of memories with that. So I, I, I was your textbook tomboy. Um, I didn't really fit in with a lot of the, a lot of the girls growing up because of, I was always different, you know, um, and a lot of, a lot of capacities actually, but that, that, there you have it. You know, I was looking back, I could not have imagined a better, a better upbringing. My, my folks did a lot of things right. And they're, they're, they're pretty wonderful. And I'm, gosh, I'm grateful for, for all of it. Cause it's, it's why I am the way I am today and why I'm down this path. And 
it was, it was pretty great. Yeah. What were you like in high school? Because you've got this, this look, let me kind of describe you for people who can't see you right now, obviously. Hopefully not right now. (laughs) Not right. Well, you know, in general, (laughs) (laughs) they'll, they'll be, they'll be looking you up. You can be guaranteed. You've got this Cameron Diaz look, right? Like I'd say, I'm sure you hear it all the time. You you look like Cameron Diaz. You're tall like Cameron Diaz. You got the long blonde hair. You're slender. You're Pilates instructor, I think I read. We'll talk about that later. I was. Five years. My gosh. Yeah. I mean, if you're not a head turner, I don't know what is. So in, in high school, were you like, um, something about Mary or <laughs> were you dorky? What were you like in high school? So funny thing. I, I was, uh, I was very athletic. Um, you know, I did all the sports. Definitely your, again, your textbook tomboy. Um, I wasn't, it wasn't that I was not popular, but I didn't really ever fit in. I was kind of in that weird, um, I knew I was just kind of different than everybody. And I never really felt like I had that home of friends. Um, you know, I didn't connect with a lot of people. I had a lot of depth to my conversation. I I was searching for something different and high school in, in in a nutshell was just really boring for me. Um, but I, I excelled in sports, um, loved, 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 loved that. Very competitive. And I was that girl that, you know, the girl in high school where like, if your best friend, I had a lot of good guy friends and they wanted the cheerleaders that were high maintenance and always complaining about something. And they wanted to blow them off and go eat pizza and have a beer with me. Cause I'm like, you know, that dude with really long hair, like their sister mm-hmm. type of thing. That was me, um, throughout high school. I was really close with a lot of the guys. And then, you know, two or three years later, when we got into college, they all decided that they had this, these feelings for me. It was a really weird deal, but I was never the girl that was sought after in that way ever. I wasn't the the one that anyone wanted to date. I was the one they wanted to hang out with and call about everything and talk to on the phone for hours, but I, I wasn't the dateable one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, it's funny hearing that because that sort of relationship makes it tricky. And I'll explain, I'll, I'll preface a bit. I, I, I've been there to some degree. I wouldn't say I was definitely not the tomboy that guys didn't want to, you know, get in bed. Mm-hmm. They tried, but I think in high school, once I figured out it wasn't going to happen, I was also accepted as one of just one of the guys. And right. it made, I don't know about if this was the same for you, but it made it really hard for me going from high school, being one of the guys to graduating, you know, going into college. Now they're not allowed to hang out with me because they're in more serious relationships and then getting into fishing and wanting to hang with my tribe and not being accepted by the guys. It was very, very confusing for me. And it made me not desperate to be accepted, but I would, I would invest more time probably than I should have into trying to figure out why they wouldn't accept me. Did you have something similar happen to you? Um, you know, maybe a little bit, my transition was different maybe because, you know, right out of college, every occupation I've ever held down with the exception of Pilates, um, I worked, I managed a hunting department for five years where I I was the only female company wide in hard goods. Um, I worked hunting and fishing when I was in my early twenties for, you know, I said five, six years. And at first, yeah, the guys were a little hesitant, you know, like what, but I was used to that. Um, with a, with a lot of things. When I joined my, my kayak club, the local club with 30 guys, you know, I was the girl that didn't want any help loading her kayak on the, on the deal. I was the only girl that was competing in this local tournament. Um, and it took a couple of days and I did feel that, that weird type of maybe not pushback, but just reluctancy to let me in. 
just yet? Well, a lot of confusion. Like, what is she doing here? Why is she here? Is she, does she have this agenda or is she, you know, cause you know, let's be honest. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of females in similar roles might have a different agenda with, with certain things. And I think guys are just, it's weird. They're not used to it. It makes them a little uncomfortable. I did experience a fair, uh, a fair amount of that initially, but gosh, I think moving forward from there, it's been, I've been so accepted with in the fishing, um, at least people that know me or have fished with me or have kind of heard of me, it's been fairly easy, but now like, when I travel with a lot of my, a lot of the guys and, and do these tournaments, the women, it, it's been tough, you know, cause you're sharing a house with eight or nine guys and three of them are married and there's this, so that, or, you know, back home, you, you go fishing with, I'm used to just, I had sleepovers with five or six of my guy friends in high school, you know, that strictly just great friendships, like my brothers to me. And to me, I didn't see that as anything wrong. Like, Hey, I'm going to go fishing with Kevin for the day, but his girlfriend's blowing him up saying, why are, why are you fishing with this girl? That was hard for me. And I dealt with that a lot. So I spent more time trying to make the women comfortable with me and let them know who I am um, than worrying about the guys. That that's, that was a very real thing for years and years and years. And I still, I think I've got past the majority of that, but that's still kind of a hold up. Anytime you think about travel arrangements or, or fishing trips, um, you have to kind of consider how that looks and what it's perceived. And I, I really try to let, you know, the, make sure the women are comfortable with it and get, let them get to know me and let them spend time with me. Um, cause that can be a whole different complex, you know? Yeah. And I think that's one that gets just more difficult as you go. I don't think that one ever eases up. I think that one is just a downward spiral. Right. Well, well a lot of people learn. I, I, it's, I've, I've got, I've, I've got hunting and fishing buddies, um, you know, with wives, with wives, I'm really good friends with now. And they totally are honest with me. They're like, when you got pregnant, we did the math to see if you were on a trip with our husband at that time. And it's like, Whoa, dude, seriously. You know? So, and, and honestly it just gets, it gets, I can't see it getting any easier as we get older and as no. we all get more, more stable and secure with our families. Like, and I wouldn't want my husband going on a fishing trip with a random woman either, regardless of how pure her intentions were. There's just so much more at risk as we get older with our families. But um, it's interesting because when we spoke earlier, when, yeah, when we spoke earlier, you said, which blog were you on? And I'm curious to know which blog I was reading because the one I was reading, it sounded like I felt, and I could be wrong. I felt like at the time that I was reading it, that you may have been going through your own internal battles with trying to feel not accepted. I feel like that's a really lame and thirsty word trying to be accepted, but I felt like I was reading words from a woman who had frustration with the obstacles that she was faced with. So was that the new blog or the old blog I was falling on? That likely was the old one back when I guided, um, back when I had just gotten into, you know, the competitive fishing scene, I will, I would, I'd be willing to bet that that was an old blog and you are so accurate in your observations there. Um, I was, I mean, they're, they're, I felt man fiery. That's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty desperate word too, but I was, I was very, um, there were some, there were some things, some topics that, were hot topics with me. I felt like I had so much to prove. I mean, it was the, I never felt like I was the victim in anything. That's definitely not what I'm doing, but I felt like I had so many different obstacles and I had to prove all of this. And I had to, to rewrite this stereotype that is women and that these women were doing a disservice to women like me and all these other different complexes that made it 
really tough for me and just felt like I was always, 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 always fighting a battle that probably didn't need to be fought. If I'm looking at it, looking back now, um, maybe not necessarily didn't need to be fought, but not with my words, more so with my actions and just, um, that's kind of what I've learned over the last five years. Look how much I've grown up. My goodness. Um, <laughs> you know, leading by example, as opposed to just attacking and, and, and fighting fires with, uh, you know, these words. And cause I, I, I was very guilty of using my words and I, I could, I could, I could do a lot of damage with my words, um, back in the day, as we all know, um, I was very capable of that. So I, I would do these, these long rants and these blogs and these cries for just, look, this, this needs to change. This is not right. This is how I feel. This is my opinion. And I'm very passionate about it. Hear me out type of deal. You know, let's talk about you now, because admittedly, I, I wasn't going to talk to you about being a woman. I was going to very, I say this to every single time I, I interview a badass woman, I end up saying, I wasn't going to talk to you about it. And then we talk to you, uh, each other about it, but it's just too hard to cut it out of the timeline, mm-hmm. but I can't let it overshadow you today because you are a tournament angler, which is really cool and something I don't know anything about. I've got questions for you. I'd like to know more about, are you fishing musky out of a kayak? I am. Yeah. That's one of my, that's my biggest, uh, biggest passion. Eight years, eight or nine years now out of the kayak with musky. Yeah. Is that the tournament fish that you're, that you're targeting though? Like I was talking to Charles today and I was like, no. you should see the woman I'm interviewing today. I was like, I think she's a tournament. I was like, she's a tournament angler. He goes, Oh, what's she, what does she fish for? And I was like, "Mut." No, that can't be right. So what, <laughs> what are you, what, what sort of fish do you tournament fish for? Bass fishing tournaments. Okay. So essentially our tournaments are structured just like professional bass fishing. Your five best fish over two, three days, however, however it be, you know, there's a cut, all of that. Um, the muskie is just what I do to give myself a little, that's my breather. That's my downtime. That's my passion. That's my release. When I have a four day break between tournaments, I'll drive six hours and spend four hours, four days on the rivers chasing musky because that's how I decompress. That is my true love. So have you tried fly fishing for them or is it all conventional gear at this point? I have actually, I, my biggest musky to date, it was actually caught on the fly, but no I have to be way. completely transparent here. That was a 100% just act of God luck thing that I caught that fish. My <laughs> casting was got awful. I mean, I had to, uh, it was terrible. Um, I've, I taught myself how to fly fish, love fly fishing. It's, it's a huge hobby, but it's one of those things that I did it because I could, I did a lot of solo travel for years and years and years to different countries and just to fish and fly rods fit in a backpack. And I was a minimalist, so it just worked, but I wanted to catch a muskie on the fly. And I was with two friends that used to guide for uh, yellow dog fly fishing. And we went out and broke ice to get on this tributary of the Sayota and they should have caught that fish. Their casts were beautiful. They were launching these big meaty streamers and everything was perfect. And um, I'm pretty sure one of them probably got that fish close enough without us even knowing it. And then my awful like butchered cast that I did caught that fish and shouldn't have. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, it was the most badass thing I've ever done, um, except for the fact that I felt very underqualified for catching that fish. Oh, no, don't feel that way because it could have been the fact that it landed. Maybe it landed with a big slap. You know what I mean? Maybe it landed in a pile and so it, it, it was drifted awful. first. Yeah, like, good, I can cast that's probably why it works. Cast little flies. Like I can I I've, I've gone out solo and caught bonefish on the fly. Like I you know, I'm I'm working on my fly fishing stuff and I feel competent in some regard. But when you're talking about casting those giant musky streamers, I don't no. No, 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 no. No. I I got a lot of work to do on that. 
a lot of work. And I <laughs> think not, my rod was overpowered. I didn't have the right line. Um, I didn't know anything going into it about that, but it was one of the coolest things I've ever done. So that was it. I caught one giant fish on the, for on a muskie on the fly. And you've caught a lot of giant fish not on the fly. So yes. yeah. let's, let's talk about that. It's interesting. I didn't realize how many questions I had about tournament fishing until recently. We're, we're getting ready to do our next episode of Into the Backing. It's my other podcast where we sit down and have this kind of, we, we pick a subject and we pick it apart. Uh, for people who are wondering where the hell that has been, I'm sorry. With COVID, it just totally threw it on everything on lockdown until we could get schedules aligned. But um, the next episode airs uh, on the uh, one week from now, one week and a few days from now. Anyway, all of that to say, I'm trying to plan another episode on fishing for trout and, and just for fish in general on their beds. And the panel I was lining up was like someone who's for fishing for trout on beds, someone who's against it and a, and a biologist. And then it occurred to me, well, wait a second, don't bass anglers fish for bass on beds? And why is that? Okay. And so I started calling some bass buddy friends of mine and I realized, holy hell, I don't know anything about tournament fishing. And I was hoping you could enlighten me because it's a totally different area that I've got no familiarity with. So maybe I could just kind of lead you through it if that's okay. Go for it. Okay. So with you personally, what inspired you to start tournament fishing? Was it a money thing? Like what was the, was it a challenge? What made you go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to totally put myself out there, be completely vulnerable and try this tournament because that is scary. That is uh, some super Mm -hmm. scary stuff. Um, you know, two things, um, that, that motivated me to get into that one. First of all, I'm kind of a, a rare person. The fact that I've never honestly to this, I've never been motivated by money. So that really had nothing to do with it going in. Um, what really pushed me, I've always been just a natural born competitor and everything that I've done. I'm very competitive. I'm probably to a fault almost. But the second thing is that I saw it as something that hadn't been done. And for me, I've always, I don't know, you you can probably relate to this in in a way, but if somebody, if there's something out there that hasn't been done, I want to be the person that can prove that it can be done. And I want to shatter these like preconceived notions that, you know, women can't compete on a professional level against the guys. And especially in a sport where there's absolutely no advantage to being a man, there's no physical advantage. There's no mental advantage, nothing. I mean, there, there should be, there should be no reason why we don't have professional female anglers other than the fact that they're just not doing it. Um, and I felt like I have, you know, the, the tenacity, the dedication, and I like the punishment enough to put myself through that. And compete. And it's something that I love to do. I love to fish. I love to compete. I love to shatter stereotypes. So it just seemed like a natural path for me. So what was it like entering your first tournament? Tell me the whole story. Do you want the first grassroots tournament or the actual like big national level tournament? Because they're two very different stories. Which one was, was most difficult for you to make the first step with? So the, the, the grassroots level, you know, just that, that'd be like your, uh, Gosh, like you, like your dog fights, your real local stuff, or it's very low pressure, not intimidating, except for the fact that I was the only female. There were, you know, maybe 50 or 50 guys, I think, competing. I actually cashed a check. I got third. And so oh, nice. here I am coming. Yeah. And this, my first tournament got third place and felt pretty awesome about that. Right. And that qualified me for a big tournament in Texas with 
150 people from all over the country that qualified. And I was like, oh yeah, no big deal. I'm going to roll in here and just do exactly what I did back home. And April, I blanked both days, zeroed both days. And I bawled my eyes out. Oh. I mean, bawled my eyes out. My grandparents came down. I felt like I remember driving back from Lake Fork, Texas, feeling like I was this just pathetic excuse for an angler. And I was like, everybody knew that I blanked because they wanted to see how I would do. And they, there was all this pressure on me. And you know, of course the girl was not going to catch anything in this tournament. And I, so I just put all this unnecessary pressure on myself and I literally zeroed at my first big tournament. Um, this was five years ago, I believe. And it, for the first six hours of the drive, it was a 10 hour excruciating drive back home with this defeat. Right. And the first few hours I was like, I'm never fishing again. I'm selling all my gear. I'm done. Like, this is it. I'm not doing it. We all, we all go through this, this battle. Right. And then all the by time. the end of the drive, yeah, I'm sitting there telling myself, I'm going to go back and I'm going to absolutely dominate this scene that I don't care what it takes. I don't care if I lose sleep, if I spend all my money, invest all my time, I'm channeling everything I've got and I'm going to put it into this. And so that's what I did. And then what happened, Cinderella? Because from what I <laughs> from what I've seen, um, it looks like you've been cleaning up out there. So, like, what was yeah. your, what was the next step in your tournament career? So the year after that, I continued to kind of dabble. I, I still lived in Nebraska, but I would fly out and fish these tournaments, and I ended up having some success. I had a fourth place out of a hundred in Gunnersville. Um, I had a sixth place on Erie and, you know, I had, a, I had several top tens and I was starting to kind of solidify a little bit of consistency on the, on the national level. And I said, okay, you know what, this is really cool. I think that, um, I had an opportunity to kind of go on the road and do it full time. And I did that. And that year I went on the road full time. I invested 115% of my energy to fishing these tournaments. And the year prior, there's a, a big bass open on Kentucky Lake, usually has 130 people. And this is a very prestigious tournament because the winner of that tournament, actually how it was structured, the, the, fir- the two people that uh, first and second place qualified for what they call Hobie Worlds. And that is a very prestigious international competition, very difficult to qualify for. The U.S. sends, I think, six people and first and second at this tournament go. And it's the best competition all over the country. And that first year I was kind of flying out and fishing random things or driving. I got third and I thought I had second and it shattered me. I mean, I was 126 people. I got third, which I should have been really happy with. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, My first year really competing nationally, but I wasn't, I was devastated. So this would have been last year was my first year on the road, full-time fishing this tournaments. And I won that tournament last year. My first big national win. I was the first female to ever legitimately qualify for Hobie Worlds. It like changed my life. Um, and I went on to win two more big tournaments that last year. Like I won three. I had a second place. I had a third place. I just, I had an incredibly, um, I guess from the outside looking in, I was incredibly successful tournament wise, but it, it came at a price. I, when I really focus on a goal, I almost disregard every other aspect of my life, taking care of myself personally, um, physically, um, taking care of my family or, or anything else. I focused everything I had and I was incredibly successful at that. But I just recently posted about that balance and I had to really reflect on that and say, look, 
though I was successful and I accomplished my goals, you know, I qualified Hobie Worlds. I won three big tournaments. I, I cashed 15 checks last year. Um, and I'm, I'm really making a name for myself as, as this competitive angler that is holding her own with the best in the game on this deal. But man, I, I gave everything to make that happen. And it was kind of an interesting, interesting self reflection that I had to do is when COVID hit and I had time to actually look back and look at kind of the wake of that success and what it meant. So that's kind of, and here we are now. Yeah. Does, do you ever sit back and, well, see, it's hard because I was, I was, I was going to ask you, do you ever sit back and wonder what's the point of it all? Why am I giving myself to all of this? But at, at the same time, if you're cashing checks, it's like going to work every day. So I mean, am I looking at it wrong? Cause like for me, I had to take a step back and be like, okay, yeah, I'm a, I'm a trope bum. Woohoo. I'm hardcore. Yeah. Respect me. I respect myself. Look at how many fish I catch. And then I, what? And then I was like, why though? But I'm lonely. <laughs> I'm totally yes, that, miserable. That's, that is the, the, that is the question right there. And that's exactly what I had to ask myself. You know, what, what am I doing this for? Honestly, you know, why for me, it's, it's interesting because I think that all of us to some degree, whether we are, you know, CEO of some company or we own a coffee shop or we're a bartender or whatnot, we all strive for this purpose in life, right? I mean, that's a really, that's a really important aspect of why we're here. And we all want to feel this sense of purpose that we're making a difference. And when I look at what I'm doing, I have to, and I still am, am, in, am in the middle of this journey right now and trying to understand, is it worth it? You know, is, is everything that I'm doing for what am I really going to make a difference on a, on a large enough scale to where I can look back 20 years from now and say that was worth it. My sacrifices, my time, everything that is, has happened. Is it worth it? I mean, do we really, I mean, at the end of the day, April, it's just fishing, right? It's really it, just fishing. It is, but we also spent so many of us spend so many hours at work. I mean, I guess the big question that I have for you is, is your tournament angling at this point paying all your bills? Like, do you have another job or is this your full-time job? Um, so I would, thankfully I don't have to rely on tournament winnings to, uh, that I count that as a, as a bonus, um, you know, sponsorships and mostly just sponsorships. And I, I've, I've, I've been a freelance writer for eight or nine years and I pick up some odd and end jobs here and there with writing, um, but no, my sponsorships pretty much pay my bills. Um, right. So your job is basically going, going fishing. So, yeah. um, so that, I mean, so many of us, I, I can't speak for myself here, but I've heard that a lot of people have been, um, really miserable and wondering about their purpose in life because they go to their office job nine to five and they're, they're miserable, miserable working for somebody else under fluorescent lights. And so it's really amazing to think of, you know, people like us who are really, fortunate to be able to forge a career outdoors. And yes, there are sacrifices and there are always mm -hmm. difficulties and hardships and all of those sorts of things. But I guess the big question here is what do you feel like you're sacrificing? So I guess for the most part would be, you know, family. Mm. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to be the one to say it. I was like, I'm not well, going to, I'm I mean, not going to, you were probably known. I was waiting for that to come. And I was like, hey, I better do this. Um, yeah, but I mean like a family and, and, and that doesn't, that's not meant to say that we all have different paths and goals and, and purposes and, and on this, on this earth. And maybe that is not meant for me, but 
you know, I've never been the girl when I was young, I never dreamed about Prince Charming or having kids. That was never really something that I felt a yearning for. And I thought that maybe one day I'd wake up and say, gosh, I want to be a mom tomorrow. Um, but I've never really had that innate earning to be, to be a mom or do any of that. But at the same time, I think because I'm just wired very differently, it maybe just hasn't occurred to me yet that I might at some point want that or will I regret it? And I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with women that both who have kids and both who don't, mm-hmm. um, really compelling conversations late night. I mean, sitting cross-legged on floors, drinking coffee and just diving into this topic. Cause it's fascinating, um, to see these women and, and the choices they've made and, and how they feel about it. And I think that for me, I haven't really decided what it is that I want in that capacity, but I do want to share this life with somebody at some point. I think we're all meant, I think we're not meant to be alone. And this life that I'm doing, I'm not very easy to be with. I'm on the go a hundred percent of the time. I have very different goals and um, objectives and everything than what I'm doing. And I look at that and I'm like, I'm doing all of this. I'm trying to pave the way for female anglers and, and do all these things and conquer these mountains, yada, yada, yada. But where does that leave me when I'm 45, you know, 40? 35, wherever, where, where is that going to be? Is, is this mission or is this, is, is this really what I'm meant to be doing? Because at the end of the day, I want to make a difference. I want to change people's lives. I want to inspire them to truly fulfill what it is they're supposed to do and to live out their purpose. I'm a huge, huge believer in that. Um, but what is my purpose? Is it meant to be fishing and, and breaking down these stereotypes and doing all this and sacrificing all this? I'm not sure. I wish yeah. I could tell you. But. Oh, and and you won't for a while. You're in your early 30s, right? Yeah, I'm 32, freshly 32, kind of. Mm-hmm. I'll be 33 very soon, actually. <laughs> what a, what am I? Yeah, that was a big. Those few years, personally for me, anyway, those few years were huge. That was when it all happened. Mm-hmm. I started wondering. Do you what, need to go this way, or you can go this way? Mm-hmm. There's there's a fork, and I'm I'm approaching it. I'm not there, but I'm I'm slowly encroaching upon this fork in the road, and I know that I've got some life altering decisions to make. But there's also this exhaustion that sets in too, where you're like, okay, you, you know, you said it yourself, you're trying to forge a path for women. And there are times when, especially when you get abused online or you see the industry heading in this, or just society heading down this path that you're like, wait, what? No, haven't you all learned from that? (laughs) Right. It's like, everything I'm doing, is this in vain? Is everything I'm doing in vain? Yes. And that's like, that's infuriating. (laughs) And a lot of the time you will bash your head against the wall. And a lot of the time it is in vain. And unfortunately there just comes a time when you just see it clearly for what it is. And you're like, "Uh Oh, now what am I supposed to do? And you start questioning yourself. Like, it's really funny. And I'm going to be totally open and, and put it out there. And only because like, I feel like I've known you for a long time, even though we don't, you know, <laughs> just met, but, um, I think I'm one of the most overrated, uh, anglers <laughs> in history. And it's funny because, you know, I talk, we talk about this all the time because I'll have, like, we went fishing not that long ago in the snowy mountains and I couldn't for the life of me get my line where I needed it to go. Turns out there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why it was a two weight. My husband had lined the rod. Everything wasn't lined properly, but I had this moment where I looked at him and he shook his head quietly and he walked away. And of course, you know, I turned around and what's that for? And he's like, I oh, just nothing. And he's like, you know, you're a professional. You should be able 
to make that cast. And I just saw red and not because he was wrong, but because he was right. And I was like, okay, what do you want me to say? That I'm overrated? And and as I was spewing this vomit, I realized what it was coming out of my mouth. And what I was saying is everybody else has hyped me up. I haven't hyped myself up. And then I had to take a big step back and go, well, have I? Is this my fault? Anyway, I could go on a whole tangent on this and we could break it down after I kind of make my point here. But my point is one day it all hits you in the face and it makes you look at yourself with more scrutiny than you ever thought that you possibly could. And it just makes you question your last 20 years. It makes you question your steps moving forward. It makes you question your value, your worth, your skill, your decisions. It literally makes you tear yourself apart. And it's a really hard time in your life when you look at yourself through that lens, if that makes sense. Coming up, Christine and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Great Fishing Adventures of Australia for making this episode possible. If you're planning a visit to Australia, I cannot emphasize enough that you check out australia.com forward slash fishing. When I followed my husband down here, I couldn't believe the opportunity I was witnessing. Huge fish, experienced guides, countless species. Australia is home to some of the most diverse quality fisheries on our planet. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia brings together some of Australia's best fishing operators to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world-class fishing destination. Learn more by visiting australia.com forward slash fishing. Like, and you said, you're, when we have to look at ourselves through that lens, we have to, I hope that when that time comes for me, that I have the tools necessary to deal with it in in the right way. You know what I mean? because I've, for a long time, women especially are, are gosh, it, it's happening. I don't know if you saw the Swarovski post um, attacking the the, ins, the influencer that they just partnered with. But women right now are under a microscope and maybe rightfully so. Like, you know, there people want some sort of, uh, you know, credibility when it comes to people representing these these companies that have had a really good reputation and haven't really had to, to utilize social media up until this point. But it's, I've tried really hard um, in all that I do to earn everything that's come my way um, in every capacity. And I still, to this day, I get people that make comments. I've had several over the, over the years that are accusing me of cheating at these tournaments or mm. even that's been a hard one for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I go pro every tournament and it's not because I want to make a YouTube video. It's to save my own tail and to say, look, here's the GoPro of every fish I've caught, of every decision I make. I talk out loud about why I'm switching to this bait because this condition is changing or the barometric pressure just dropped and I know these fish are going to move up on this bar and feed. I detail everything so people know and understand that this is me doing what I'm doing. No one's catching the fish for me. No one's making decisions for me. I'm out there by myself. I pre-fish. I break down maps and all of this. And for what? You know, No matter what I feel like, I do. I'm under a microscope. It's, it's awful, you know, and that's something that that'll never change. No. And that actually brings me to the crux of, and to my whole point of that rant that I just kind of mindlessly threw out there. You are in this really cool situation where, well, I guess I'll, I'll ask you, I don't want to assume you're in a situation. See, for me, I have to look at myself and be like, am I overrated? Maybe. Am I the best steelheader? No. Am I the best caster? No. Am I the best fly tire? No. 
Am I a good businesswoman? Yeah. Have I been a good pioneer for, for this? Yes. So am I overrated? Sure. In many ways. And am I overrated in a lot of other ways? Nope. But with you, do you ever even question if you're overrated? Because like, if someone were to say that you could laugh because you're a, a tournament angler. Like, does that, does that part of any sort of insecurity or questioning even exist for you being a tournament angler? You know, maybe, maybe not because my tournament, I mean, you can't really fake tournament success. Um, and that's maybe a reason why I did it because before I started tournament fishing, I, I, obviously I fished my entire life. I, I started Instagram and put these pictures, these giant pike and muskie up and people, I get those comments saying, well, she caught him. Someone caught him for, you know, she didn't yeah. really catch that. <laughs> a guy, a guy took her out. She's on a guide trip. And rightfully so a lot, a lot that happened a lot. So I didn't, I don't fault people for initially thinking that, but I was like, okay, look, I'm going to show you all. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to fish tournaments because then what can you do? If I succeed, why? Like you can't take that away from me. Um, and so I did that and I, I started fishing tournaments and I guess when it comes to being overrated, I mean, I'm not on the, I, there's never been a professional, a true professional female angler. I mean, one that has qualified for the elites or MLF, the two big professional entities out there when it comes to bass fishing, they, there's never been one that's been good enough to make that circuit. Um, so when people, I, I do feel overrated when I get, you know, people commenting after I, I win a tournament on the national kayak scene, which there are a lot of ex-boaters and tournament FLW guys that fish the kayak circuit. And we've had a couple of pros, Mike Iconelli and Jordan Lee have fished the kayak tournaments and it's been great for our sport. But when there's people that comment on there, oh, you could make the elites, you know, if you, you just got to fish the open, you'd qualify. I'm like, no, I, no, that's not how that would go. Um, I'd probably fish the opens and get my freaking tail kicked for three or four years. And then I think that after that, I think, yeah, I think I do have what it takes to eventually get there, but I'm not just going to come out and take money from the best 80 guys in the world. Like that's not how that's going to go at all. <laughs> it would be so, so nice yeah, though. So, <laughs> it would be awesome. Would be great. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I would love that to go with that, but that's not realistic. Um, I'm a, I'm, I, I feel very competent in my angling abilities, but at the same time going up against the 80 professional men out there that have grown up with a flipping stick in their hands since they were two and do this for a living and are doing this to feed their families. No, I don't think that tomorrow I could go out there in a bass boat that I, I haven't spent any time in and, and kick their tail. Yeah. <laughs> That's not how that would go. But you know, see, so yeah, I feel, I feel overrated in that capacity but, for sure. But, but you're not overrated. That's the key here. And I've never read anything about you being overrated and I've never read anything about a, an angler man or woman who does well in tournaments as being overrated. But for some reason, I'm constantly seeing people like myself who, and, and hundreds of other anglers who do this professionally constantly be called overrated. So what, where do we draw the line? Like, what does that mean? And obviously it's a sensitive subject for me being overrated, even though it's true in a lot right. of, in a lot of ways. So what does that mean though? Like, where do you draw the line on being overrated? Does that mean that we're truly only worth recognition, you know, worth the recognition that we receive if we are catching more fish than anyone else? Like where, where's the line there? That is the, that is the conversation that I love to have. And I think it's really interesting. And obviously there are going to be, um, opinions all over the spectrum on this, right? But I think that because it's not fair to people like you that have put the time and have um, built themselves um, on a very solid foundation and have a very credible reputation, but you have to understand that in the, in the industry that we're in right now, it is flooded 
absolutely flooded and inundated with a lot of, uh, gosh, what is a better word than posers? Um, there's gotta be a better word than that. It's, it's a, uh, my, sorry, my brain is fogged, but you know what I mean? They're everywhere. And you go to, I, you go to shows like ICAST and TSA and all this stuff. And you're, you're just like, um, wow, this is a uh, shot show. You're just like, my goodness, this is, this is like reality fishing and hunting. And this is not, this is not the outdoors. So you get, you get these people, you get these guys and, and maybe gals that are, that are just tired of it. They're done. They're, they're, they're upset because these women that have spent two days in the outdoors are getting these opportunities and sponsorships that they feel entitled to because they put the time in. They, they know about X ship on Shimano reels, but they just sponsored a gal that couldn't tell you what a metanium is or a bantam is, you know, it's like, so there are people that are just angry out there. And so then they're looking at that and they see that they're using that and seeing that any female with this opportunity or this platform, well, how'd she get there? If, if, if this 90% of, of the, the industry got there based on their looks or because they're just solely because they're a female, well, they just lump all of us into this general, this general term. And I think that we all get kind of lost in that, um, a little bit, which is not how it should be by any means. But then what, where do we draw the line? What, what constitutes and, and what's the criteria? Well, that's what I would like to know. Like what makes, what makes somebody not overrated then? I mean, is it that they've genuinely put in their time? Does that make them not overrated? I mean, one of my favorite exchanges is listening to the guy, let's be honest, the guys bitching about it online. They're like, yeah, but she guided on this river and that river. And then when that wasn't enough, they were like, oh, but that river's so easy. I mean, there's so many still out there. So it's like, where? <laughs> and, 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 what the and, criteria would be is, is, if, is, is transparency and being real. Um, just being real, being real. That is such a, a, that is such a thing that I think that we're missing in every aspect of what we're doing, especially on social media, because people want to put this, this front out there. And some of the, some of the most impactful people that I've ever met in my life, um, one of my roommates is one of them is very new to fishing and fishes tournaments and hasn't maybe had a lot of success in the tournament field, but she documents all of it and she's real. She's a beginner and it's so relatable and it's so just raw and incredible because it's real. So I think that, I think that would be just off, off, I don't want to say, um, but I, I hate the word authentic, um, like a, originality, just genuine, real, transparent. Look, I, you know, if a gal came out there and said, I'm a terrible bass fisherman, but I freaking love it. I like getting up at sleeping until nine, getting out there. And I like when these fish blow up on this big thing that I've got out there. It's awesome. Like, love it. Not the best at it learning. Maybe just being real. Maybe that's what people are craving. Um, but it's when you have a gal out there that's painted like this professional backcountry sheep hunter and she's never been in the mountain. That type of thing, I think, infuriates people and they're getting tired of it and they don't want to see it. They want somebody. That's real. Um, especially when you're representing a brand, um, you know, like a high end product, wouldn't you expect like, look at, look at the males, look at, look at male, what it takes to be a male professional in our sport, right? You're teaching seminars. You are either cashing checks, fishing tournaments on a high level, teaching seminars, um, competently about the product, doing videos. How many females could do what the male pros can do realistically, exactly like they do. And yeah, it's if, like, if we there were, equality. if there were as many of them out there doing it as the guys, I would suspect it would be a pretty even number, but because the reality is there aren't as many women out there doing it, the, they're just, you know, the, they're, I guess the answer to your question is not very many, 
could be doing it in the way that they're doing it, considering the the numbers and the statistics. Um, may I ask you something? Absolutely. Be totally brutally honest. How much of this is the media's fault? And I lump myself in media, by the way. Um, how much of this is our fault? You know, I read an article, and I won't throw anyone under the bus too far, but I'd read an article from a mainstream hunting, fishing media source recently, and they were celebrating a, a female bass angler who had won, made a big win. I can't remember who it was. And the sole fo- – I didn't read the article, the original article, but apparently – it was so bad. They'd only like they mentioned about her boobs in the first few sentences and they had to write a, a, an apology letter. And my point is if a media outlet of that size and that reputation is celebrating a, a, a win and making comments and, and drawing attention to the fact that it's a woman or you and I are sitting here right now, technically media talking about being a, a woman. How much of this is our fault? Because then other women are watching all of this and seeing the attention and they're like, Oh, well that encourages me to go out and, and do something because clearly there's a market for it. Every time that people talk about it, it's the sole focus. Right. Um, honestly, I'm going to be a hundred percent, um, honest with you on this, April. I think that, it is 95, if not more percent, the media's fault. You can't blame the women for seeing a, a flaw in our system and taking advantage of it. You really can't blame them. That's human nature. Well, and it's being a businesswoman, right? And I think that that's a trend that we're seeing is a lot of these people who are being sponsored. Yes, we all huff and puff and try to blow the house down. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's, 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 it's easy. It is so, um, ridiculously easy right now to be a female in the outdoors. And as much as like, you know, it's unfortunate is what it is and you can't fault them for that. Who you have to look at are the companies or is the media and what they're portraying and how they're portraying it and how they are marketing it. It's, you can't, you really cannot fault the women here. But then it, swing, it, it, it swings, right? It's like television. I remember for a while there, I was going back and forth with a big television network. And it was like, and this went on for like 12 years. And one year they'd be like, oh, April, we're focusing all of our efforts on um, female, strong females this year. And then the next year they're like, oh, the trends are changing. We need to have less empowered females and more of this and more of that. Or this year we're focusing on guns. Like every year has got a trend. So it's almost like this big pendulum where right. it's easy for well, women. And then it swings the other way. And I've been there on that swing where, where they're like, we want, we want to sponsor you. We can't sponsor you because people will just assume it's because you're a woman. We're really sorry. We're going to have to wait until, you know, the trend changes. So it is, it's like this big, huge swinging. Who, who is in control of these trends? I always wondered that, you know, like I had this, I, I wore the same clothes since I was like five years old. I like flannel and like, you know, very outdoorsy oriented clothes. And there was a time where I remember flannel was in and then it wasn't. And then all of a sudden it was, and my, you know, people would come up and say, Oh, I love your shirt. And I got that like every nine years. I was like, oh, I'm trending again. But who, like, who, how does that happen? Like, who, how, who are we, who controls these trends? Like, what is that? I've never really, that's one thing I've never understood. And I, I, I like to know a little bit about everything out there. And that's one thing that I've never been able to uh, put the puzzle pieces together with. I can't speak on behalf of fashion, but I've got a pretty decent idea, in my opinion anyway, on the sort of, um, whether it's a strong woman this year or a, a more passive woman this year. And it feels like, so much of it is, is politics, right? Yeah. And, and again, I'm just a 
little Canadian Australian watching American politics from afar. And I love um, listening to Ben Shapiro, even, <laughs> even though I, I, I don't agree with everything he says, but I do enjoy listening to him. Um, and you know, it, it's interesting to hear just how it swung from like me too, even being so strong and empowered to now we're in a stage where people are experts are genuinely concerned that men um, are, are going to be suffering the most with a lot of these, you know, quote unquote trends. So I, I would say politics, but I'd be definitely wading in over my head if I tried to delve into it any deeper than that. No, I think, I think you're, that's a, um, it's a pretty sound observation for sure. If you look at it and how, cause right now I know I've felt it personally that women are, and, and so, you know, women and, um, minorities, I will go and put that out there. They, they want diversity in the outdoors more, more now than ever. And that's probably definitely because of political, you know, recent political things. So that's, you're probably spot on with that. I mean, it'll always come down to money, right? It doesn't matter if it's political. It's always going to come down to money. Right. And that is something that I feel comfortable speaking about. But so I think that's what it comes down to is they just want as many people as possible in because that means more money. Mm-hmm. And com- as far as companies go, and I found myself in a, in a similar situation recently with my, with my company, with Anchored Outdoors, which is my, my new company. And it's my first company that's not focused around myself. And in looking at marketing and looking at numbers and looking at reach and all of those things that we sit and look at that keep us up at night as, as business owners, it is impossible for me to not look at influencers. And when I look at taking on an influencer, it's really hard. It's very tempting as an influencer to look at somebody who's got a high following, who isn't against anything that, I, that, you know, that I'm against, uh, but I know deep down why they're being sponsored, right? Right. Uh, as a business owner, it's hard to walk away from that, especially if they're like, I believe in your product and I want to support you. And you know that they can, and you know that they're not really doing any damage. Mm. I don't know. I get it. I get it. But it always comes down to money. That's a tightrope. Um, so I notice that we follow some of the same, um, troll accounts. Oh, I know where you're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a big part of me that feels guilty for adding to their audience and an even bigger part of me that feels guiltier for wasting my time reading that stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, it's interesting because it helps me keep my finger on the pulse with what's going on out there. Right. And with the, with the trends, what's, what are your thoughts on these whole troll accounts? Um, I, I know the the two that you're probably referring to and that, yeah, it's like you, we indulge in it because it is this entertainment and, you know, some of it, you, you, it's like a train wreck you can't turn away from. And at times there are some very valid points that I agree with that they're making, but with a lot of, a lot of flair, a lot of unnecessary flair probably. And I think that it's, that's a really tough one because a lot of people call them, you know, the, the heroes, you know, that the, the industry needs, you know, that they're wearing this cape and they, they've definitely, there's a, there's a base there, but at the end of the day, what, what good does it do? Um, and when I say that, yes, I agree with them that a lot of the stuff, especially when they bring up the, the, you know, the poaching and this illegal, um, you know, killing, mishandling of fish or whatever it may be hundred percent on board with that. But the other stuff, is it, does it discourage newcomers into the sport? 
and women primarily, um, you know, that look at this and say, well, gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. So if I do this and take a picture, are they going to make fun of me and ruin my life and, and, and harass me in this way? So I've, I've tried to take a step back from all of it and just look at these troll accounts and really try to, to look at it from every single perspective that I can, because you know, my background, you know, how I feel. And I'm very passionate about, especially the women fishing and having these credible anglers that, um, you know, that we can get behind that are the face of women fishing and whatnot. But also we want to be welcoming and, and opening to newcomers in our sport. And what, gosh, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here and I'm not getting my thoughts organized very well. It's really hard. It, that that's a very tough topic. Are they necessary? Do they do good? Do they do more bad? Um, are they bringing? It, it is probably toxic to a degree, right? I think that they help control the trends. Do I think they're toxic to a degree? Yeah, of course. But I also think that they contribute to the trends. You know, I know. Right. I've heard from se- several businesses in the in, in the fishing industry who have been like, look, I got to be honest, before I go and do something with my company, I do think to myself, if I do this, is it going to flare up on a troll account? And same with myself. I've had a couple influencers where I've been really tempted, really tempted. And then I've thought, I don't know if it's worth having to deal with it um, with the silent majority and, and, you know, reading about it later on a troll account. So I'm I'm very curious. And I totally admit I learned about you through one of those troll accounts. Yeah. So actually both of them, I've, 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 uh, conversed with both of them numerous times over the years and I'm thankful to have their respect and I support a lot of what it is that they do. And I think that they have good intentions in what they're doing. Maybe the, some of the posts I don't a hundred percent agree with. Um, I can think of a few over the years that I'm just like, man, that, that might be a little much, or there's probably a little better way. And they probably agree with that too. Um, but now the recent one where they brought up the Swarovski deal, that was necessary. They really received some pushback. And I think that from what I've heard, um, their marketing team is, is trying to, you know, try to come back from that and not maybe do that ever again. And that without that account posting it, it probably would not have had the level of pushback that it did. And I think that's important for companies to see that. Like, look, to have a vetting process, you've got to make sure they fit the culture that is the picture you're trying to paint, right? That's the key word right there, right? Staying, staying within brand, right? If you've built your brand on... Yeah, staying within brand. That makes perfect sense. Um, speaking of staying within brand, I've got questions for you about tournaments, if that's okay. Certainly. How would somebody who's listening to this right now, who really just wants to compete, not against other people, but they, they want to do it for themselves, or maybe they look at themselves and question if they're overrated and to them within themselves and they want to give themselves that little bit of self-validation. What would the first step be? Honestly, um, I think the first most important thing is we can't compare ourselves to anybody else out there. You can't compare yourself to me. You can't compare yourself to the best angler out there. You have to look at yourself. And if you've got a goal, if you're something you want to do, let all of it, we, we get so guilty of listening to all these outside voices telling us who we should be, who we are, you know, who we're not. Listen to yourself, listen to that inner voice and just go do it. If that's what you want to do and that you, you're going to find some, some self love in that absolutely do it. Fear is very binding and listening to everybody else and what, what they think you should do is very binding. And I think that 
the best thing you can do, self-worth is really tough for a lot of us. And I think a lot of people battle with that. And I think that for me personally, getting out there on my own and fishing these tournaments and, and having the camaraderie that I found in this sport was one of the best decisions I could have ever made. It's not an easy route, but nothing good ever comes easy in this and in life and anything. So if, if it's something that, that potentially scares you or that is going to be difficult, I'm all for doing it. That's why I musky fish because no one in their right freaking mind would spend time musky fishing, but the reward is there. And it's like, if it's, if it's this, this painful, emotional battle, do it because there's growth there and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and just do it. So you pay, you pay your fee, you go out, you try to catch fish. You obviously have to prove you've caught a certain amount of fish. And then what happens? You come back and, and do they hang it on a board? Like, can you just blank out and very quietly hang your head and walk away without anyone knowing? Yeah. How do you, how do you, like, what's the presentation of it all? Okay. So that's, what's really cool about kayak fishing. Um, with the, with the boat side of it, obviously with the exception of MLF, when they do a, a catch, um, way release, it's all, all live in that, um, the boat world, you know, you have your live well. And so you bring your bag in, you weigh it. And if you don't have a bag, obviously it's humiliating, right? So kayak fishing, um, is a, is a little bit less intimidating and it's very welcoming and it's a little less cutthroat than the, the boating world. So what do you mean by you bring your okay. bag in? Cause so that's on, very the, confusing on the boating side of it, like you've got your Bassmaster elites, you know, arguably the, the most, um, prestigious trail out there and the professional is, is, is bass, Bassmaster. And you, you see the, the Bassmaster classic they have every year. Um, and they, they drive the boats in the anglers bring a, they have a large bag that has the auction in the water and they've got their, it's, it's your best five fish each day. And you bring your bag in and you weigh it and they hold their big fish up for the crowd. Everyone cheers and they go back. And, you know, if you don't have a bag, you kind of walk up and you're like, I had a tough day out there. Nothing. Uh, you know, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So the, they're dead. They're dead. No, fish? no they, they have to be alive. If, if they're dead, you're, you're penalized. So is the bag full of water? Yep. It's water with oxygen tablets in it. So oh. it keeps the fish alive. Yeah. Now for kayak though, we do catch photo release. So we have a, a very innovative app that we use. We have a pre-certified measuring board with a unique identifier and an app that has our timestamp, GPS, all of that. So there's no way that we can, you know, not do anything right. And we have the certified measuring board that has a, a sticker on it that we get the day before the tournament. And we put the fish on there and we do it by length and it's our best five. And then we submit that fish to an app. And then that total does our total inches. So yeah, people can go in and look and see, oh, how'd they finish? Uh, they, you know, they got zero inches. That's they blanked. Um, or, okay, they've got 95. That's great. You know, it's, they just follow you from there. And the kayak fishing is great though, because it is, it's great for our, for our sport. It is catch photo release right away. Um, you don't have to, the overhead's not there. You don't have to buy a boat. You don't have to get up there against these people and pay these huge entry fees. And to be honest with you, April, kayak fishing now if you look at another like smaller league or like the BFLs or our tournaments pay out better than those do, you know, wow. we, we fish for tournaments that pay out 30 grand for first, you know, or 10 grand for first or six grand for the, the smaller ones. I mean, it's not there with relatively low overhead. And the best thing about our sports, the community, we're all, we're, we're all, it seems like this kayak fishing family is, it was built from these minimalist people that love to get outdoors and just are passionate about helping others, teaching them about the sport. So I'd encourage any people out there that are curious about tournament fishing, get into the kayak world. 
I've, I've gained a family in this whole deal. I feel like I've got, you know, a hundred new grandpas and a 500 fathers and these thousand big brothers on and these 50 States that I travel to that we're, we're just a giant family. And it's, it's, it's a really unique thing because the bass boat side sometimes are, are painted in this very cutthroat, um, stab you in the back to, to get, to get this and get all this money type of deal or kayak fishing. We're like, nah, man, like let's have a campfire and have a couple beers and hopefully we catch them tomorrow type of deal. You know, we, we're still very competitive, but it's, it's way more welcoming and less, a little less intimidating. I think I feel, I get that vibe. I look at a lot of the stuff Hobie does and I get that vibe. It seems just a little more chill. Did I see that you caught a sailfish in a kayak? I did. Yeah, I did. What? Yeah. About five, six years ago. I love, I'm a trophy hunter. I love catching fish that are, you know, bigger than me or what, what have you. I, I love that. So yeah, I caught a sailfish in the kayak down in Florida off Delray beach and it was awesome. Um, that was a cool deal. But aren't you Very terrified? Cool like I would love to start kayak fishing here in Australia and I'm terrified that a tiger shark okay, is going to be like, way your great whites are on steroids down yeah. there. I'm not sure <laughs> I would kayak fish in Australia. Let's be honest. Um, so yeah, I would, I would caution you on that probably. <laughs> okay, good. I will heed your advice. Now, um, what about this whole bass on beds thing? I'm very confused by it. I had read that that guy got busted fishing for bass on beds, but I thought that tournament anglers fished for bass on beds. Can you help me understand this? Absolutely. Um, so it is a strategy. It's completely legal um, okay. in tournaments. And I'm not a fan of bed fishing just strictly because it's an t- entirely different way to fish. Um, but, you know, as you know, depending on where you're on the country, bass will spawn in the, or in the early spring or down in January if you're in Florida. And essentially the controversy is if you're looking at it, at least from the, the bass standpoint, you pull a fish off the bed, you're, you're messing up a little bit of that process there. And if you're fishing for smallmouth on beds, a lot of the lakes up North have the goby and you, you pull them off their bed, put them in a live well, drive them across the lake and the goby come in and eat the eggs. So there's been a lot of, a lot of research and, um, on you know, underwater footage and stuff trying to done to paint bed fishing in a better light. And, um, depending on what the ecosystem is and how that all kind of sets up, there's a lot of different opinions on it, as you well know, but it's, it's perfectly legal in tournament and it's, it's a strategy. Um, I typically try to target pre or post spawners because I'm going to be honest with you. I am not a great bed fisherman. I didn't grow up down South to where you have the ability to see fish on beds. You know, Nebraska, we've got, you know, the, the, the muddy farm pond waters and we could never see fish bedding. It was very rare. So I, I didn't have a lot of practice doing that, but what I can do is, is, is catch post and pre spawners very well. I know where they set up and where they're staging. And I understand that process. Um, I fish for fish on a bed, but again, it's just not something that I uh, like to waste a lot of time doing, but it's perfectly legal in, in all the tournaments. Um, you see a 10 pounder sitting there, guys will waste five hours trying to catch that fish. So why did that guy get crucified? What did he do wrong? That was so devastating to his career. Was, was that Mike Long, the California guy? Mm-hmm, yeah. He, he was snagging them. Oh, okay. Well, that's different. Yeah. yeah totally different. Okay. Got mm-hmm. it. Say no more. Snagging them and, and acting like, yeah, it's like the, the Batman thing when, when you have the, you have the, the guy Joker there and he's like, we can't tell the people that the Joker is a Joker because it would ruin. He was painted as this like heroic figure for Gotham city. It was like that. It like ruined everybody. I almost wish that that never would have came out because all these kids looked up to him and idolized him. And then he comes out as this fraud and it just is devastating to our community. But that's part of it. Ouch. Yeah, it was terrible. 
what people do for fame, right? Well, what are your thoughts on this? In, in the trout and salmon world, it's highly frowned upon. As, for me, it's illegal. Like in Canada, in a lot of places in Canada, it's it's just illegal. So it's a non-issue. But in certain places in Colorado and other states, it's not illegal. Yet if somebody is busted doing it, they're immediately, you know, quote unquote, canceled. They're like the next Mike Long. Yeah, so black, black hole, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, what, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? And I ask selfishly because when we do this into the backing episode, I'm really battling with myself on whether or not to even include a bass angler in the conversation because I don't know if it's relevant. I mean, do you think that they're part and parcel, that they're that they're similar enough to put together at the same table? Uh, maybe this – so, you know, my trout knowledge is nothing compared to what my bass knowledge is, but I do know that my knowledge of trout people – uh, is fairly good. I have a lot of guys. I I know a lot of that culture, and you know, I mean, your trout fishermen, man, they are. You better, they're purists, right, in every <laughs> regard, and you better be doing everything right. That fish better be in the water at all times. You better not even lift it up out of the water. It better have all the slime on it, and you better not be in the picture. And you can't do a grip and grin. And there's all these rules, like unwritten rules in trout fishing, that I, you know, I've learned. And I'm like, gosh, man, things have. It's a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting community for sure. But <laughs> I respect that. I've got respect for it, right? Um, so I, I, that doesn't surprise me at all that there's a lot of, uh, backlash with fishing for trout on beds. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all, but, but your bad guys probably are not the guys to ask about that because they're not going to give you the answers probably that you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'll wait to hear the response from people when they listen to the episode. And if, look, if there's a huge demand for it and people are like, no, damn it, April, do another one. We want to hear a bass guy and, and or gal and their opinion, then we'll do it another one. Um, what about catch and release when it comes to properly holding bass? That's something that I uh, admittedly am a little bit confused about because I always thought you lipped them. And then I remember them saying, okay, support their belly. But then I would do that and they'd be like, no, you're holding it too hard around the heart. Like what is, what is the proper way? to handle a bass, especially for somebody who is tournament fishing and, and doing catch and release angling. So that's going to um, greatly depend on who you ask. Now, I always try to follow um, the general guideline that if you have a large fish, regardless of the species, and I, I try really hard to educate myself on every species. I don't want to be someone that goes out there and doesn't know what they're doing and is uh, disrespecting our resources in, in any regard. So with bass, you see, obviously, um, with a, with large fish, I always think no matter what the species, it's just customary and proper to, you know, lipping bass is fine. Um, and I always try to support the belly and do that, that more of a, a vertical hold there. But you see, again, the Bassmaster elites, they take their two fish and they're holding them up just like that. And that's what we see as bass fishing. And a lot of the research that I've personally done, um, there's not enough out there that says that it is detrimental to their health. If they are for a few seconds held up, what is it, vertically like that? Um, even though when I try to do most of my stuff with with larger, you know, your double digit bass plus, I try to do that horizontal supporting the belly. But I think that's more important when you're getting into your ESOC species, um, your larger game fish like that. But like I said, you've got you've got our the face of bass fishing doing those vertical holds and all of their tournaments, and those fish are released and they swim off fine. And I, I just haven't seen enough negative research that states otherwise. So with bass, they're they're pretty hardy. You know, same general rule of thumb: don't keep the fish out of the water for an unrealistic amount of time. I think with any species, keeping the fish in the water is huge. That's probably the best thing we can do as anglers. Is you know. 
we've got this thing where we want to take this great picture, but keep the fish in the net in the water, get everything set up, fish lift up, few seconds, fish goes back in, releases, good. I, I think that practicing that is is probably the best way to do it. And with trout, you know, obviously it's never lift him up and do a grip and grin because that's frowned upon. So you said something there Mm -hmm. a second ago that was very interesting to me. You said the face of bass fishing tournaments. And to me, the first thing I think of is like a bunch of NASCAR looking driver, driver looking guys standing around hoisting trophies and, and fish up in the air. Do you think, or have you seen that image starting to change? Or do you think it's one of those things where it will just forever be that that's the face that will forever be? That's a good question. Um, I think like you mentioned with trends, um, people are, are trying to paint a more diverse picture of bass fishing and it looks, cause it looks different to everybody. And realistically, April tournament fishing makes up such a tiny percentage of what actually represents the fishing industry, right? Very small, very, very, very small. Even in kayak fishing, the amount of kayak tournament anglers compared to the amount of kayak wreck anglers is is bar none. I mean, it's maybe 20% tournament anglers with the majority are just recreational anglers that like to get out when they get off of work at five o'clock and, you know, cast the bank for a few hours. So um, that's a great question. I think that how we see it in the magazines and, you know, what we look up to, it's, it's always that, that next level. And I guess what that is for right now are, is the, the professional entities that are, that are bass fishing and everyone kind of looks to what they're doing. And you look at the, the, the videos and the, I mean, all of this, it's that, that kind of tailors back to it. I'm not sure if that, if that will change, but I'm, I'm sure it will because it's where the money goes, right? Yeah. More money is going to be put into, getting more people into the sport, which this year was record high for fishing licenses in, in the country with COVID, which is, is, you know, great. Um, we may see a change in that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's something that's very interesting to me. I'm going to, I'm just going to keep watching it. Is there, I mean, I feel like you and I could probably talk forever. I would love to <laughs> sit down. I'd love to be matching the drink that you're drinking right now <laughs> instead of my coffee and have a really nice, like have a proper off the record discussion about a lot of things. But is there anything in particular that you would like to address while I've got you on here? You know, I think that we've loosely kind of covered a lot of the interesting stuff. But like you said, yeah, I would, I, I, I think that we could probably talk for entirely too long over a good old fashioned. Before we wrap it up, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? I do want to ask you something. If you could, what, if you have one species on your list, what would it be? I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, but I always, I think that, you know, like people have their drink and it kind of defines them. I think people have their one species that they just, that's the one thing they want to target all the time. And it kind of says a lot about who you are as an angler. So I'm curious what yours would be. Like if I was going to die tomorrow and I had one more day. Yep. One more day. So maybe not one that you, maybe one that you've, you, you've caught, you know, before that you've, you've chased and loved, or maybe one that you haven't, if you're going to die tomorrow and you had one day to go target that species, what would it be? Steelhead. I thought that might be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so much more than, Oh, they pull hard. They take hard. It's not, it's none of that. It's, it's none of those it's culture. It's, it's, it's all of it, right? It's my history with them. As I get older and you know, I could go down a whole long path on this and I won't just cause I don't feel like crying right now, but as my, my dog's going to die any day, right? Colby's not well. And I'm sorry. That's his life, right? He's 12 and he's a St. Bernard. So he was never supposed to live this long anyway, but, but it's going to happen. And it really, I realized that when Colby's gone, that's it for my twenties. They're dead. They're gone. 
And as a mom, and you know, look, like I love my life and I love my daughter. I love my husband, all those things, you know, and I'm not just saying that to be, you know, <laughs> to be like a good mom, but I love all that. But I, I don't want to forget the person I was in my early twenties. I love her. She was a mess, but I'm not ready to let her go yet. I want to remember her. I love who she made me. So steelhead are that one thing. Like when Colby's gone and my youth is gone and all those things are gone, I'll still have steelhead to remind me that that was who I was then. So for me, it's so much more than just what they are as a species. It's what they help me to remember about myself, if that makes sense. Oh, you nailed that. That was great. Thank you. Thanks. What about you? What would you fish for? Muskie. Uh, why? Um, again, not because they pull hard or because, you know, they're this elusive badass predator, but because they, I see a lot of who I am and, and what their reputation is. And that's the, it's, it's the challenge. It's the chase. It's the, it is the giving everything you have and the suffering. It is all about the suffering and enduring to get to where you are with that. And I, I love it. I absolutely, I love, hate it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I love being out there and I love knowing that any moment could just be a life-changing deal. So look, I'm going to really enjoy watching your career and your life and just you over the next decade, there are going to be some really awesome changes. And I'm very I'm just, you're very intriguing. Um, I'm here if you ever need me. And I hope that we can continue our conversation again. Me too, April. It was an absolute pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm ill there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.